1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Amanda McVitie about her book titled Treason and Masculinity in Medieval England, Gender, Law, and Political Culture, which is just out in 2022 from Boydell and Brewer Press. This is an absolutely fascinating book that does essentially two main important things and then combines them, And it creates a whole extra new thing of thinking. um, And I found this really fascinating. Essentially, what this book does, as you might assume from the title, Treason and Masculinity, is it actually thinks about treason in terms of politics and law and society in England in the later Middle Ages, which I was quite surprised to um, understand from the book, is actually something that hasn't received sort of extensive treatment, really, in quite a long time. So from that alone, this is a really useful um, contribution. But the book also interprets treason in a new way, uh, which is quite interesting, looking at, as I said, the legal side, the political side, um, but also in terms of culture and society and making a really important claim to understand the gender analysis, really, of um, treason and how we should be adapting and expanding our understanding of this legal and political thing through the lens of conceptions of masculinity. So, That's a little bit of an introduction, but obviously I am not the expert on it. So I'm very excited, Amanda, to have you here to tell us all about your amazing book.
0: Well, hello, and thank you for having me.
1: Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Certainly. So I am a historian of uh, gender as applied to primarily political and legal culture in the late medieval period. Uh, focusing primarily on the English context, but also comparative work with France and other polities in that period. I first got into this topic because I was looking at the execution rituals surrounding um, the executions of some very high-profile traitors in the late 1300s, early 1400s, and as I went through the uh, both the legal records from these cases and also the various uh, narrative accounts of what had happened and chronicles and other kinds of narrative sources. I was actually very struck by how central uh, male bodies and idea, very uh, gendered ideas around male honour and loyalty and so on were in these trials. And then I became quite fascinated Looking at the legal records themselves, and this really led me down the path of opening up my inquiry beyond the endpoint of a of a treason case, which is the execution of the traitor and uh, the very spectacular dismemberment of their body, and often the distribution of their body parts. Uh, taking us taking a few steps backwards and really thinking about, well, what did treason? really mean in this in this political and cultural context and putting legal concepts and uh, legal records into dialogue with some other kinds of sources such as uh, ideas around treason and honour that are so prevalent in works of chivalric romance literature that is so popular in this period and also um in the religious context as well, where we get a lot of focus on the crucifixion of Christ and, and the betrayal of Judas and, and these kinds of more uh quite rich and complex ideas around what treason means and who the traitor is. So that is what led me down the track of choosing a a a, a small kind of segment of treason cases that I could really dig into quite deeply and Look at the legal records in detail, and look at the other sources around those trials as well. Mm. Could
1: you tell us a bit about sort of that choice and the sort of political context of it? You focus on the period from Richard II to Henry IV in England. Um, why this period, and what cases does this allow you to look at?
0: Well, I chose this period because we get this period of great political instability between Richard's reign and the accession of the um, the infant Henry VI in the, in the 1420s uh, because there is a lot of polit- political conflict under Richard. He comes to the throne as a 10-year-old. It's a minority government, <clears throat> which is always somewhat unstable. There were a lot of powerful men around him, including a number of his own relatives who were all vying to, to kind of control government through the young king. And we, we get sort of flashpoints throughout Richard's reign where political consensus completely break, just breaks down and treason is used as a political weapon to get rid of... Enemies that are perceived to be what we might call in, in, a, in another faction at court. And you get a couple of episodes, uh, the Merciless Parliament in 1388 being one of them, uh, where a large number of the king's close supporters, uh, friends and servants are accused and convicted of treason and quite a few of them are executed or sent into permanent exile there's another episode like that in the 1390s, uh, where Richard, as an now as an adult male king himself, uh, takes his revenge on the people who destroyed his his uh, allies in the 1380s, and kind of there's another bout of these spectacular treason trials in Parliament, um, the execution of noblemen and so on and then richard is deposed in 1399 his his kingship has become t- so untenable that he's removed from the throne and his throne is usurped by his cousin who becomes henry the 4th and this is a very very difficult process to for the political community to work through, they have no precedent for how do you actually remove from the throne someone who has been chosen to be king by God, who has this quasi-sacral office of kingship, and the the problem of how to separate a human king, the person, from this the body, the uh, the sort of the eternal body politic that's represented by the. The office of kingship is is incredibly challenging. They work through it, but it leaves a large number of people who are, you know, basically say that Henry IV isn't the true king. There's a series of rebellions. Although Henry IV initially comes to the throne uh, uh, with quite a lot of support from the political community, he's quite initially, you know, there's there's this hopeful. Uh, now we finally have a good king and, you know, things will go better for us in future. But the practical realities of the situation, you know, the crown is financially stressed. There's various wars going on um, and there's very soon, you know, within months people are kind of complaining about Henry's kingship and and then you get a whole series of Either actual plots or the crown fearing there's plots afoot to remove Henry from the throne and to bring back Richard and restore him, and that continues into um, Henry the Fourth's son, Henry the Fifth. Although often our the popular perception of Henry the Fifth is of this heroic king, the kind of the victor of uh, the Battle of Agincourt and the the savior of the English nation and so on. That's really uh, looking, uh, looking with the benefit of hindsight, really, where we know that this happens in 1415, and you know he comes back to England in triumph and and secures, you know, eventually secures the French king's agreement for the English crown to inherit the French throne and so on. But when he first comes to the throne, there's a lot of. Uh, a lot of unrest in England for various reasons um, economic problems, the sort of conflict about England's ongoing engagement in war with France and the costs of that war, uh, and so on. And so his kingship is actually rather uncertain at the beginning as well. And there are people who are saying, you know, Henry is not the true king. Um, if Richard is dead, Richard died in 1400, so he's definitely dead. Um, although these rumours continue to circulate that Richard is actually still alive and he's in hiding and he's just waiting to come back to England and and save save the people from uh, this usurping king and you know the monarchy will be restored and all its good all its glory and so on. So. Henry's reign too is a period where we see a number of quite interesting treason trials as uh, they try to resolve this issue of questions about Henry and his Lancastrian bloodline, so the, uh, the Lancasters who replace the Plantagenets on the throne with the accession of Henry IV, uh, you know, questioning the legitimacy of that bloodline and and. and Pointing to alternative heirs who are, you know, as as uh, H- Henry's critics or enemies would argue, there are other people who are more legitimate heirs to the throne than he is. So this whole period, because of this kind of ongoing inst- political instability, makes it a really interesting period for studying treason and and these concern this sort of fairly uh, consistent concern over the period it kind of ebbs and flows at different times but you know the, the crown is concerned about plots against the king and, and enemies within the country within the nation itself um, not just you know foreign enemies but the the sort of the the idea of the the enemy within and this the potential traitor at the heart of the court mm-hmm Lots
1: to get into in this time period. Um, And of course, there's a lot of historians that have gotten into um, these high profile changes of power in exactly this time period. Um, But one of the things that you do that's quite new is introducing examinations of gender into um, not just sort of specific cases, but really this whole kind of political, um, legal, social, religious culture at this time. So how does this kind of new lens or applying this lens in a new way um, help us understand and expand what we think of as treason during this time?
0: Well, I think what I hope I've contributed uh, through this book, and I see this very much as a, a start of a of a conversation and you know, a field of research rather than the, the definitive argument about it, but... Uh, I really I think that viewing treason through the lens of gender really brings into focus how central the male body was to, ma- to medieval political and constitutional thinking. Uh, and, and it highlights the importance of masculine performances and debates about uh, male honor and trueness and so on um, in mediating these conflicts about where, where power lay and who actually had the authority to wield it. And what I found when I began sort of doing my research around this topic was a lot of the work, there's some fantastic work on scholarship on treason in this period, certainly, by um, scholars like John Bellamy and others. Um, But what I discovered was... Some of them do take a more, like more recent scholarship does take a more cultural approach, but thinking about uh, treason in relation to uh, broader cultural themes and ideas around chivalric honour and um, the the concept of knighthood and, and those kinds of very important ideas that are so so key especially for elite society in this period Um, but I think by bringing the lens of gender to it adds another layer as well and really opens up our understanding of treason as this very flexible legal construct but also a very powerful cultural idea and, and as I mentioned before a political weapon as well. Um, so I think, that go like bringing gender to this to this question really builds on some fantastic work that's been done over the past sort of five to ten years. Um, first of all, work on gender and queenship, which has really expanded our understanding mm. of the role of queens and queen consorts, and and gotten beyond. The sort of rather simplistic, older, traditional studies of queens, uh, and and to really interrogate the the office of queenship itself, and and how there is this very fluid exchange of what might be perceived as quite traditional gender roles, often between kings and queens, where you know, kings can take on some. F- Traditionally, feminine attributes and queens can take on what might be seen as masculine attributes around sort of political and military leadership and so on. So that that work was really in the back of my mind as I started thinking about mm-hmm. how I could bring an analysis of gender to this question of treason. Um, but also uh, more recently, and perhaps more directly related to my own work, are uh, Sort of recent studies of kingship and masculinity, in particular, that have really demonstrated that we can't we can't fully understand medieval political thought and legal and constitutional history without attention to gender, um, and to really to not just accept uh, as a sort of on the face of it, that political society in this period was very much a a masculine society. I mean, women did operate within the political realm and held power in different ways. But if we look at the actual formal offices of government, uh, who goes to parliament, who occupies all the key offices of state, such as chancellor and treasurer and so on, it's all men. And the whole government functions through relationships between men, these relationships of patronage and clientage and uh, collaboration, uh, factional conflict and so on. And so to kind of interrogate the, the, the masculinity of those institutions and structures rather than just accepting it at face value, I think then opens up a whole... Realm of new questions we can ask of our sources, and and really thinking about not just how gender operates in that specific uh, historical and political context, but then more widely to really think about how gender operates to um, to inflect relationships of power much more broadly. You know, right through into our own you know contemporary times. Um, So Mm. yes, so that's where I wanted to kind of go by bringing gender to this question.
1: Mm. It opens up a lot of things. Which is fascinating and of course we'll get into some of those things um, in talking more about the book, though obviously we won't get into all of the detail that the book does, so I will direct readers to the book itself um, for the details of each case and its uh, detailed analysis. Um, But I do want to ask you about um, a concept that you bring throughout the study of homosociality. Can you explain to us kind of how this concept fits into the cultural side of treason and what treason meant?
0: Okay. So homosociality is this, uh, the idea or the a, a sort of a theoretical framework for understanding, uh, in my case, how these relationships between men operate. Um, so a homosociality can involve the relationships between men in which women can be points of triangulation, uh, but the, the primary power relationship is between men and it can be horizontal relationships of power, such as ideas around um, chivalric brotherhood or uh, filial uh, loyalties within families and kin groups, and so on, or it can help operate um, vertically. So the differentiation in power uh, between men of perhaps different social classes, holding different types of political office or political power, uh, and and homo sociality is really a way of looking not just through gender, but putting gender together with other categories of identity such as um, social status, perceived national or ethnic or racial identities or religious identities and these other kinds of categories of identity. So homosexuality is basically a way to think about how... how, uh, Power operates within a system where all the power is held by men, or all the formal power is held by men. So there's very masculine polity. But within that, how do different men access power, and what kinds of power do they have access to, and how are relationships between men actually, um, you know, how do they actually operate, and the kinds of. Um, sort of affective and institutional structures and so on do these these relationships operate through so homosociality we often uh, look at things like expressions of love or affinity between men or uh, of conflict sort of these conflicts over contests over honour and status and so on so uh, it's quite a (laughs) being a a sort of a more theoretical construct it can be a little bit abstract but i hope that that makes sense Mm
1: -hmm. yeah no thank you for explaining that um i think it's a useful framework to sort of enter this world um from thinking of it the point of view of like literal physical men um rather than purely kind of a ah there's a legal document that's probably in latin that's got the word treason in it you know what does that mean it's like well actually there's a lot of social aspects to this. Like it's literally human men most of the time yelling at other human men (laughs) um, in sort of very particular ways, which was fascinating, particularly in the section of the book where you talk about the idea of true and false manhood, right? Which of course is deeply constructed on many levels. Um, So how do ideas of true and false manhood relate to accusations of treason, because you show that some, you know, they're used in all sorts of ways. And sometimes it means that someone is convicted, or someone can withstand conviction, often sort of revolving around these ideas of kind of, are you a real man, essentially. Um, So what is happening here?
0: Uh, so yes, this your your phrasing there of trueness being being you know a true man being a real man uh, is actually quite apt because that is one good way to think about this construct of trueness and true manhood in this period. It is uh, very much an expression of an ideal. Uh, like all ideals, it is open to interpretation in any. In any particular um, instance of it being used, but the idea of trueness partly comes from it. Partly comes from legal concepts. So, when we when we look at, for example, um, an indictment that's brought against someone <clears throat> to charge them with a crime, uh, the people that decide whether that indictment is legitimate, like whether there is actually a case to answer. Uh, they are men of uh, a jury a jury of presentment and you know, so we talk about jury members as true men um, you good men and true is the standard phrasing for calling up a jury a jury and they would declare a bill if 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 the indictment is legitimate they would say well this is a true bill meaning these these charges are um, legitimate charges this is not a uh, this is not a sort of a beat up uh, and this case can therefore go to the next step in the legal process. So this idea of trueness it really filters throughout the legal system, both in the sense of uh, juries and jurors and other men who were charged with making these very, you know, life and death decisions often in the, in the legal context are true. They're honest, they're honourable, but, uh, one of the uh, essential characteristics of trueness is to be true to your word, to honor your word, not to break bonds that are sworn by oaths. So in this system where we still have, although we do have written contracts coming into use in this period, indentures and so on, the first step in any kind of relationship like that are are either a a social to create a social bond or a, an economic bond making a a business contract or, you know, things like um, contracting land exchanges or marriages or or, or this whole realm of sealing relationships between men. Um, The first step is, is the swearing of an oath and, if you you swear an oath before God, it's incre- you know it's it's profoundly serious, and the the implications of breaking that oath are you know quite extreme. Uh, if you but you know, are sincere about it, the potential that you have not only uh, broken some kind of social or economic arrangement with another person, but you've also broken your word. To God, because you've sworn this oath on, you know, on on God, um, that you have. So sometimes this could be interpreted also through a very a sort of a framework of sin, so that lying and oath breaking and those kinds of things are also closely related to the idea of blasphemy. Um, so this trueness is very much the central value that an ideal that holds this society together that relies on personal and social bonds between individual men. Uh, and so what I found with treason trials is, you know, regardless of the the kind of incident it is, uh, whether it's, you know, anything from, you know, trying to kill the king by putting a, um, a metal spike in his bed, or uh, putting poison—you know—a necromancer's poisoned ointment under his saddle to to kill him through magic, or it's something that we might more characteristically think of as treasonous, such as sort of raising an army to to uh, ride against the king in battle or uh, to try to sort of murder him and his family within their household or those kinds of more, I guess, classical ideas of treason. But all of these cases always start with the breaking of bonds, the breaking of some kind of verbal oath between men. Um, and this the the bond the, the oath between subject between a subject and the king or in the case of the, the context of knighthood between, say, a knight and his lord, is this very important primary um, social and political relationship in this society, and that that is where treason cases, you know, regardless of what happens later in terms of the actual physical actions that people take, it always starts with these either breaking a bond a, you know a, a bond of loyalty or um liegehood, the the bond between the subject and their king. Um, that that's sort of always the starting point. Or the other thing that I that we that I I found in these looking at these records is the kind of the obverse to that, which is that men swear false bonds against the king. So the idea of groups of men forming these sort of Conspiracy groups or covens, as they're called in the uh, often called in the records, the idea of the secret group of men who have broken their sworn bond to the king and sworn bonds with each other. These false bonds that are about raising a, cons- a conspiracy or a plot or a rebellion to remove the king. So, mm. and so this this idea of trueness really operates. Uh, we see it a lot in works that are talking about knighthood and chivalry and honour and so on, trueness and honour often kind of go together as concepts and those kinds of sources. But it also operates uh, right through society at all levels of society. So you see it in, you know, um, local manor courts and things like that, people talking about truth and trueness and true, uh, you know, True men being the men who should be trusted with the uh, the authority to uh, sort of judge, you know, act as juries on cases and 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 to hold office and the you know these kinds of very local levels as well.
1: Mm. And it really, in a lot of ways, goes back to the idea of homo sociality that these things might end up as kind of legal cases in front of parliament with. Um, executions in a lot of instances, but start off with this idea of kind of a social bond between realistically men. Um, And that's kind of where a lot of the debate sort of revolves. So thank you for unpacking that and explaining um, these concepts of false and true that do turn up all the time, but maybe we don't always think about what they were actually saying.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: So I'd love to, now that we have a very good understanding of um, treason, the different ways that it operates, some of the frameworks that we're using, um, I would love to get into one example, really, Um it was difficult to kind of pick one up, except <laughs> then we got to the parliament in 1397, and this really was kind of the perfect example to ask you about, um, because as you describe in the book, there is, quote, manipulation of treason. So not just treason, but playing with it too. Um, So I'm wondering if you can tell us about this manipulation and explain how it had longer term changes and implications to not just treason, but really the constitutional relationship between the king, the state,
0: Politics, etc. There is a lot going on
1: with treason in this Parliament. Tell us about definitely,
0: it. Definitely, definitely. Okay, the 1397 Parliament is is a wonderful uh, incident in this in this history of treason, known as also known as the Revenge Parliament. This might might give you a bit of a feel for what happens mm-hmm. during it. What mm-hmm. What happens is this is basically. Uh, so I mentioned earlier the merciless Parliament of 1388, when Richard Richard was had basically had his power as king very much curbed, uh, although he was he had reached his uh, I think he was around around mm, between eighteen and twenty I think at the time of the merciless Parliament I can't exactly remember his age, but he was of an age where he could expect to be stepping into his full authority as an adult male king. And his attempts to do this were really thwarted by the powerful men around him, who included his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, um, Richard, Earl of Arundel, the Earl of Warwick, a number of other noblemen. Uh, And they were basically... There was a conflict then about over-control of the government that ended with, as I mentioned, uh, you know, a, a, a relatively large group of Richard's supporters, including some close friends, either being executed as tra- 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 traitors or being exiled from the country. And so this really, Richard seems to have t- took this as a major slight to his masculine honor. So it wasn't just about the fact that his political ambitions had been curbed. It was the fact that he you know he took this incredibly personally. And over the following decade, as he began to build his power, and especially by the mid mid-1390s, he's really very, you know, he has a he's through various policies and initiatives and so on, he has gotten himself to the point where he is now very much in control of his government. He has full power to the point where people in England are actually starting to describe him as a tyrant. Um, this is the kind of government he is perceived to be operating by the mid-1390s. Uh, you know, a lot of programs like you know, forced loans and things like that to help fund his various uh, royal ambitions, military and, and otherwise. Um, and then in 1397, he finally he is he's he's clearly been stewing away on what uh, Arundel, Gloucester, and Warwick in particular, uh, what he perceives they did to him in 1388, and has perhaps be been kind of contemplating his revenge the whole time. But finally, in the 1397 Parliament, he has an opportunity to to deal with them all through treason charges and the, the, the manipulation aspect is that uh, back in 1388 after the dramas of the merciless parliament and, and there was this very ceremonial act of reconciliation between uh, ritual of reconciliation between Richard and I'll focus on these three men in particular Warwick, Gloucester and Arundel because there were others but um these were kind of the most prominent, and being the you know senior noblemen were among the the most significant figures. Uh, but through this this sort of very ritualistic uh, performance of forgiveness from Richard, and as part of that, he grants them pardons for everything that they've done. And these are supposed to be, you know permanent and enduring pardons that wipe the slate clean. But then in thirteen ninety seven, he charges all three of them with treason. These charges seem to have come rather out of the blue for these men. Um, so the Duke of Gloucester is is taken at his castle and he's immediately spirited away on a ship to Calais and imprisoned in Calais. Um, and the other two are, are sort of taken up and, and taken to, to London and imprisoned. Um, but they Arundel... Arundel's trial takes place in Parliament, and there are a lot of accounts from this period that that Richard basically packed the Parliament to ensure that the Commons were populated with his own supporters, or certainly with people who were not going to challenge him in terms of what he was doing. And he revokes the pardon that he had granted, which was, you know, unprecedented unheard of for a king to do this that it, it was you know it made him not just dishonorable as a man but really undermined his own claims to kingship the sort of withdrawing of of mercy uh, and he charges Arundel the charges against him are clearly to do with what happened in 1388 and so Arundel in Parliament, is claiming the benefit of the pardon that he had received, and says that you know he hasn't done since since that time. He had been a true and loyal subject. He'd never done anything else to, to cross, um, Richard. And this is basically contested by Richard's um, spokes spokesman, the, the steward of England, um, the Duke of Lancaster, who's acting in that judicial role during this parliamentary trial. Uh, and Arundel then goes on to to sort of say, uh, basically, he only if he ever if he did anything wrong, he had only been doing it for the good of the realm. Uh, so we start to see this discourse coming through that by um, trying to quote unquote counsel the king or to to kind of curb the king's power and to put him back on the right track in terms of his policies and and doing the right thing that this was something Arundel wasn't doing because he was disloyal or anything else he was doing it for the good of the realm so you start to see this division here between you know Richard as the king and and the the idea of the common good of the realm um, but eventually there's this there's this what seems to have been quite a uh, a lively trial in which Arundel really did his best to defend himself and lobbied all these accusations against Richard and his supporters as being uh, you know manipulative and unjust so this idea of that you know the the, the king who's Primary responsibility is to is to dispense justice. Is not doing that Isn't you know to be an unjust king is arguably not to be a king at all, but to be a tyrant. Uh, so this, if none of this actually works for Arundel, he's he's kind of a dead man walking by the time he gets into Parliament, uh, and he does use this very interesting phrase where uh, Richard is saying to him, you know, you've been judged guilty by uh, you know Richard's spokesman you know you've been judged guilty by us the commons and the, you know the 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 king and the king's councillors and so on and you know Arundel turns around and says you know you're not the true commons so you know where are the true commons they've been excluded from this unjust proceeding uh, so he really he, he tries to defend himself. it doesn't work. He's convicted as a traitor and he's basically taken out and beheaded later that same day. Um, and then the Duke of Gloucester is interesting because he actually ends up being murdered in the castle of Calais. He's smothered to death by a featherbed. So his conviction comes from this uh, rather interesting Letter that is read out in Parliament that is supposedly his confession to treason that's been sent back to England and, and the letter itself is very interesting because um, a, a sort of a high court judge had been sent to Calais to to question Gloucester and to to take his confession or to take his witness uh, his statement if you will. And that, that document itself had been manipulated a bit, like dates had been changed and things like that. Uh, but this letter is then, is pre- parts of it are read out in Parliament and they're used to say, well, Gloucester has confessed to treason, therefore, you know, he should be convicted. He's already dead at this point, although Parliament doesn't know that. But um, the argument is, you know, if we... We should, we should execute him because he's a confessed traitor. But parts of the letter were actually suppressed, uh, and these are the parts where Gloucester is claiming the benefit of his pardon. Uh, and again, coming back to this idea that he had nothing he had done was out of malice or evil, um, that he had only done the things that he did for the common good of the realm, and also purely in self-defence uh, because... He believed Richard was out to kill him, so he had only been defending himself as any good knight would. So, so Gloucester is basically convicted as a traitor um, post mortem. He's already dead by the time Parliament meets, uh, and through these cases, because it does take because this issue of the pardons pardons should not be able to be revoked on the on essentially on the whim of the king. So some of the legal uh, justifications around these convictions need to, there's a bit of, the, there's some new ideas of treason that are incorporated into the legal record purely as a kind of an ad hoc response to this particular event, but they then have much uh they have sort of more enduring implications in terms of how treason is interpreted uh, in later reigns. Um, and so one of those is this idea of, you know, if you if you simply um, defame or they use the word slander the king, that that is enough to get you convicted of treason. So that was not something that had been, uh, that was part of the standard, Uh, statute of treasons the 1352 statute which although it was very somewhat um, ambiguous was generally interpreted to mean you had to commit some kind of physical act there had to be some kind of physical action to constitute an act of treason but in the 1397 parliament it's very much well just just insulting words or slanderous speech could be enough to to get you convicted of treason and the other thing that happens in, that, in the, uh, the sort of the legal proceedings around that parliament is the idea that these men have betrayed, um, have been traitors not just to Richard as their king, but also to the realm or nation of England is, is coming through quite strongly in the records too. So you start to see this, this sort of more explicit expansion in the scope of treason. To go beyond just the physical body of the king, but these other kinds of uh, more abstract institutions of the state or the nation of England.
1: Hmm. So very that was rather,
0: rather, rather a long answer, but uh, very interesting. Yeah, 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 it is a um, and and apart from the these very fascinating legal changes. The Parliament itself is is quite fascinating in terms of seeing um, Aaron, Arundel in particular put on this very uh, almost chivalric performance, you know, standing on his own honour and trueness to defend himself and to say that he is the one that is being true. And Richard, mm. he actually accuses Richard at one point of, of being false, which is... You know a very serious accusation in this in this context
1: mm. so i want to kind of stay on this idea this idea of false speech by being a particularly big deal um Arundel's obviously an example you've explained previously about kind of how much one lives up to the ideals um but where do women fit into this uh, particularly if treason has now expanded so that merely saying bad things about the king would count you no longer have to for example raise an army and presumably that would open women up to be considered traitors
0: right well one would think so but some very interesting things happen when we look at women in these treason cases because they are definitely involved they crop up a number of times in some cases um men are convicted of treason simply for repeating the speech of women but the women themselves are never charged they just kind of disappear from the records they're recorded as um, you know a tailor's wife from such and such village had said these things and then this other this this man repeated them and he is the one that's been charged but the, the tailor's wife sort of disappears into the we don't there doesn't seem to have ever been any real consequences for her. Um, this relates to a wider shift in how speech is gendered in, uh, over the 14th century, and it's partly connected to the idea of sins of the tongue, which becomes very prominent in uh, this is a, a, a sort of a religious concept, but it becomes very prominent in preaching, especially in teaching for ordinary lay people, the idea that sins of the tongue, including things like, um, I mentioned earlier, blasphemy, lying, um, things like gossip, uh, sort of malicious speech of various kinds, that is uh, what we see over the 14th century through court records is it becomes increasingly gendered so that women's deviant or malicious speech It's sort of seen as a little bit of a kind of characteristic of the general, so called perceived innate flaws of women, you know, their their greater weakness and um, sort of openness to temptation to sin and all these other ideas that surround women in this period. You know, intellectually inferior to men, physically inferior and so on um, so their speech is still punished. Usually in uh, church courts it's punished with, you know, you might get sort of penances and, and things like that. Sometimes if it's really serious there was some kind of uh, corporal punishment like stop, being put in the stocks. But men's speech is perceived as much more damaging. And this partly relates to the, this, the sort of central importance of verbal oaths and bonds between men that seal contracts, that seal relationships. And so men's false speech comes to be seen as much more uh, damaging to the social body of other men, of the men it's targeted at. So things like defamation and slander, by men is treated much more seriously by the courts than than women. And in the, these treason cases, what happens is that um, the falseness comes from men either saying things a, about the king, sort of insulting the king, or saying especially that he is not the true king, that he's not the legitimate king. Uh, so saying those things off their own um on their own initiative or repeating the words of others. But what what really transforms it into treasonous speech is that they say these words in public and they avow them as true, meaning they basically swear mm. to the truth of them. So there is this very uh, complex relationship between truth and falseness in these records where these men are often saying, and, and we get a, quite a lot of these cases starting to crop up just after Richard has been deposed and Henry has come to the throne. And in particular, there's a whole series of cases that involve uh, people who remain loyal to Richard II. And so they claim their trueness lies in the fact that they have stayed loyal to their true and legitimate king and their lord in a kind of chivalric sense, a sense of um, knightly loyalty, Uh, But then they are because they are going around saying, saying, spreading, spreading rumors, or in some cases, distributing handwritten like little handbills or letters saying that Richard is the true king. Um, He's he's about to come back at any moment and at the head of an army and take back his throne from this illegitimate usurper and all his true men should be ready to rise up in arms and support him, these kinds of ideas. And and especially with the verbal rumours, if they say those in some kind of public space, uh, we get cases where people have been, you know, has been speaking in streets or um, in taverns and those kinds of, you know, just general public venues where they might perhaps just be overheard. But, the public nature of their speech plus the fact that they are swearing that what they are saying is true are the things that then make it uh, in terms of the legal system and ideas about treasonous speech that this is perceived as false speech. Um, So that, yeah, that, that sort of tension between trueness and falseness and true and false speech runs throughout all of these kinds of cases And who is speaking the truth and in what kind of context is quite important.
1: Well, and you also raise um, in the investigation of these massively detailed cases that you've gone through um, with a fine tooth comb, really, that it's both what's being said um, and how it's being said and where it's being said, but also what language is being used because uh, yes, yes. this is also sort of something of a transition between Latin being everything, and um, Norman French still being vaguely thrown around, um, but really also the ver- rise of vernacular English. So how does that play into treason trials, particularly kind of over the time period?
0: Well, so the, the records themselves, uh, the legal records, things like um, the indictments and the plea roll records that record the actual you know, uh, legal process from initial accusations, charges against a person to their final conviction. Uh, so they use a mix of languages. So indictments are normally in Latin. Uh, the language of the English common law legal system in this period is primarily uh, what's known as law French. So it's kind of a slightly weird and archaic form of. You know, elements of Anglo-Norman French and, and just other kinds of borrow words. But then, so those that, that would be the kind of standard language of, you know, when they write out, the, the legal clerk writes out, you know, they, they've taken a witness statement from so-and-so person on this day and time and this is what they said. But when we get first-person language in these records, and we do get quite a bit of it, especially in these cases where people are being accused of treasonous speech, uh, that is often recorded in first person English. And when I first started looking at this, I was really struck by why why this was the case. And what becomes clear looking at these records is that English itself in this period, more widely, uh, is coming to be seen as a kind of a language of veracity and of authenticity. Um, especially first-person English, and this is more broadly connected to where we see ideas starting to come through in this period that um, people should have, have access to Scripture, to the Word of God in their own language so that they can kind of connect with it directly rather than going through Latin, you know, Latin or sort of uh, translations and so on. Um And this is a very controversial concept because we do get it associated with forms of religious heresy in the period where people are being accused of heresy because they're translating religious texts, particularly the Bible, into vernacular languages. Um, So, you know, in that sense, it's sort of uh, removing the separation between ordinary people and the, the Latin elite of the clergy and university educated men and so on but in the legal records it really comes to, we start to see it more in other kinds of government contexts in this period, Uh, for example when uh, kings are endorsing so a a petition has been put to them, for example a, a petition from the Commons in Parliament asking for something, if the king is just uh, saying, yep, okay, we'll do that. It's it's pretty straightforward and the, and the language is generally French. You know, the king wills it. However, if there is a more complex explanation or the king, for some reason, is not going to grant this petition, we quite often see it, the explanation being in English, starting to come in. So English is starting to be used a bit more in other kinds of government contexts in this period. But in trial records, it really is serving in one sense to represent if, if you have someone and, and you're you know they they're being charged primarily with treasonous speech, so there is no physical action you can point to. they haven't tried to stab the king, they haven't raised an army against him, you haven't got those very solid material. Uh, kinds of crimes to charge them with all you've got is their speech but their speech itself when it's copied into the record in first person English it's like the person themselves is you know confessing their treason proving themselves guilty of treason with their own words so um, this the this, this sort of the vernacular English in itself starts to serve as an element of proof in a sense, in, in the legal sense. Uh, but it does also have this capacity because it is seen as a, a kind of almost the essence of trueness. If through vernacular first person English, a person is saying, I am the one who is being, you know, I, I'm only doing these things because I am loyal to the true king, to Richard II. Or in some of these cases, you start to get these ideas coming through, such as with um, the Earl of Arundel, uh, the idea that people are doing these things because they're loyal to the crown. They're true men to the crown. And this is a phrase that comes up in a couple of these cases where men are saying, are defending themselves against charges of treason by saying they are true men to the crown. So it's quite an interesting distinction between the crown, and someone they perceive to be an illegitimate usurper.
1: Mm. Well, and one of the things that was particularly interesting, and we've already sort of touched on this, is that over the time period that you look at, what counts as treason expands and expands quite specifically sort of top down, right? The king decides that it now includes these other things and sort of trials and paperwork, et cetera, are engineered to make that happen. but. As you just showed in that example with the Earl of Arundel, um, that expansion was not uncontested. Although he obviously did die in that particular case, so as we look towards kind of the end of this time period that you cover, to what extent were was this broadening of treason accepted? You know, became the thing that happened going forward
0: or contested? Um. It really, it doesn't get any simpler as the period goes on. Things like the definitions of treason, it's almost like every time they try to clarify and simplify things, uh, they make them more complicated. Uh, they, they add a new layers of uh, meaning to this, to this concept of treason. Um, so... The uh, the the way that treason expands is f- generally for quite ad hoc reasons. Like there is no, uh, in some of these these shifts in the laws of treason, there is no overarching kind of legal reform process at work. Uh, it's really the laws being changed in in response to particular incidents. To to get rid of particular enemies of the king, or to deal with specific um, situations, um, and and so you do get these ideas coming through increasingly of treason still being, in it's you know the thirteen fifty two sense of the statute, an attack on the king or his you know his immediate family. You know, raising an army you know in rebellion against him, those kinds of things attacks on his senior officers while they're actually doing the king's business. but these other layers are coming in as well where the the concept of um, you know partly in response to this issue of having deposed a king, of separating an individual man from the office of kingship. Uh, there's a sort of a, an element of abstraction that starts to come in where, the body of the king and the body politic of the realm are still very much intertwined but, but not necessarily coterminous. You can kind of separate the two and, and what we see a lot more is the, the idea of um, people claiming, claiming loyalty to the crown uh, that is demonstrated through their defiance of the king or someone that they don't accept is actually the legitimate king. And then the other thing that starts to come through, especially in the um, when we get into the sort of fourteen tens, is the idea of treason as an act against the nation of England. Um, so there's phrasing around, um, you know, someone having betrayed the king, but also. The tongue in which they were born, which this idea of language as as identity, as identifying you as being English, so um, you know against the tongue, against the nation in which you were born, uh, those kinds of ideas are, are coming through as well. And but they're all very much; these concepts are very much open to uh, contest by. I mean, particularly when we're talking about the political elite who have the capacity to, to argue against or to defend themselves against, you know, some of these attacks by by the crown's legal officials, uh, but also by ordinary people as well who are who are calling on these, you know, these other kinds of ideas like the common good and the common profit of the realm to defend themselves against. Accusations of treason, and there is always a concern about the crown abusing um, the charge of treason just to to get rid of its political enemies. So, to to using it illegitimately, and we certainly see cases when they go to um, jury trials where juries refuse to convict people. Like the king clearly expects. A conviction, and the jury will not won't do it, and so um, in the case of you know Henry the Fourth, there's a there's a famous kind of trial of a number of friars and other religious men who are accused of treason because they're amongst this group that is circulating these these accounts that Richard is Richard the Second is the true king, and he's he's going to come back and. Um, you know, regain his throne, and Henry is is an illegitimate usurper, and, and things. So they've all been put on trial, uh, and the accounts and the chronicles of this, because it is it is quite shocking, because the king executes all these um, clerics, religious men, for, as traitors, which is you know almost unheard of. But, you know, there there is sort of cases of what sounds like jury tampering and intimidation that's gone on to try and get convictions. And one of the chronicles in particular talks about juries from a couple of different districts just refusing to serve in these cases, and in another case, they initially come back with a not guilty verdict and they're sent away to... To re- reconsider their options, if you will, and so and, and then afterwards, um, you know, according to these chroniclers who are religious figures themselves, so have a certain interest in this, so we can't necessarily trust them to be a hundred percent unbiased in this. But you know, they say that these these jurors then had to kind of beg for forgive, you know, beg for um, forgiveness for having wrongly convicted. These friars of treason. Um, so you do get these examples where clearly the the crown's expansions of treason, particularly around you know starting to bring in things like you know speech alone, merely being overheard in a tavern, insulting the king, or you know those kinds of those kinds of um, aspects of. Harmful speech, where that's being actually treated as an act of treason, um, juries are definitely not. You know, they're not. They're not just endorsing this. They're definitely. You know, there are cases where juries resist that and will not give a conviction. And in one case, the case of John Mortimer, which is quite sort of the last significant trial I look at in the book, and sort of. Between about 1420 and 1422, he seems to have been imprisoned in, in various places, places, and they tried multiple times to get him convicted of treason. Uh, there's at least two juries that acquit him on these charges, although he isn't released. And then eventually, it takes um, basically an act of parliament to to get rid of him. Um, so, somewhat mysterious case. We still don't really know why he was such a problem for the government because he wasn't a particularly powerful man. Uh, it might have been because um, he was possibly very distantly related to someone who did have a good claim to the throne earlier. Um, and so he was seen as perhaps carrying this this claim. Um, but yes, you know, you, so you do get... Uh, the the government's attempts to expand the scope of treason are definitely resisted at various levels of the political community.
1: Fascinating. Um, I find that particularly interesting when we sort of think about kind of the broad sweep of history and sort of we often think of things that kings do in sort of kind of top down, well, the king said this, therefore that's what happened. Um, and it's always good to be reminded that it's much more complex than that. So thank you for explaining that to us. As my last question, um, and hopefully not my hardest question, I would love for you to maybe could you give us a sneak peek or a little taster of what you might be working on now that the book is done?
0: Okay. Um, yes. Well, a couple of couple of areas. One area is to look uh, much more about gender in the um, the legal system itself, with legal the the gendering of the legal profession and this this masculine community that is developing um, common lawyers as a profession emerges somewhere around the late 1200s early 1300s and then you know getting into the 1400s 1500s it's become a very consolidated community and just through looking at legal records and and kind of getting a little bit of a sense of some of the people behind these cases, um, legal legal officials, lawyers, judges and so on. I became quite fascinated by the actual generally unquestioned maleness of the legal sphere itself and I think, um, you know, although obviously today... We, you know the legal profession is very much I think they might, we might have even more women um, graduating from law school uh, these days but you know in many countries the, the senior ranks of the legal profession are still dominated by men. Um, so thinking about why that is the case historically and, and, and in particular how this community developed in the first place, and how ideas of legal authority in particular came to be masculinized. So looking at gender in legal culture more broadly, really building on looking at specific legal records and and judges and lawyers for this project. But then I have not finished with treason by any means. (laughs) The more I've I've looked at it, the more I think there is much, much more to say. And my other kind of new... uh, Project is to to look more closely at women in these cases and and work out uh, what is going on with how women's uh, what could be perceived as treasonous acts uh, more about how they can they can operate and perhaps uh, you know in the fifteenth century in particular where we do get these cases where women are not only involved in treason cases, but in a couple that I looked at in the book were actually the instigators of these plots and never kind of had any real repercussions for it. Um, So thinking a little bit more about, well, does this actually potentially give women more freedom to operate under the radar? Because treason as a, a political crime is possibly not, not something that the legal system, it's almost like it just doesn't see it in women. It can't, you know, because it doesn't see women as political actors, that they cannot be guilty of this political crime of treason. Um, But with that project, I am moving uh, further ahead in time. So I'm looking at, I'm actually working with a, a colleague at the moment where we're looking at a couple of cases One of them being the case of Anne Boleyn, which creates some interesting new precedents around treason. Um, And also another case in the 1440s with the Duchess of Gloucester, who's initially accused of treason and a few other crimes, but eventually it seems that the treason kind of was, treason charges were kind of dropped or erased, and she ended up being accused of probably heresy in the end um, but but thinking about especially when we move into the 16th century we do see some quite interesting new treason laws come out under under Henry VIII in particular that much more explicitly incorporate women into the legal conceptual framework for treason and some interesting ways that are, that are connected in particular to women's Um, sexual behavior and the kind of the ideas around sexual disloyalty and connecting that to political disloyalty. So that's kind of where I'm going next of thinking much more about uh, still through the lens of gender but looking at uh, more specifically at women and treason well
1: thank you for giving us a glimpse into both of those very fascinating projects um hopefully if they become books you can come back and tell us more about them <laughs> um but while you are off investigating listeners can read the book that we've been discussing again titled treason and masculinity in medieval england gender law and political culture dr amanda McVitty, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast well thank you very much for having me